Welcome back to the Manly Saints Project. By me, Hugh Hunter. We live in a world that struggles to understand the virtues of manliness. Our culture doesn't provide young men, or any men for that matter, with a lot of positive male role models. When I became a Catholic, I wanted to show how the saints could be manly role models for us. My weekly exploration of manly saints became the Manly Saints Project. If you enjoy my work, please consider signing up and supporting me on Substack, or click the links in the show notes to buy me a beer. Now, let's meet this week's Manly Saint. Join me today as we encounter a martyr who can teach us how a Christian man faces his own death. Name, Bartolomé Blanco Marquez. Life. 1914 to 1936. Status, blessed. Feast, October 2nd. My dearest Maruja, he began the letter. Bartolomé Blanco Marquez paused to think what to say next. He was writing to his girlfriend from prison. He knew that he would never see Maruja again. Bartolomé was 21 years old. His 22nd birthday was coming up in November, but that was impossibly distant now. He had been sentenced to die by firing squad in the morning. It was 1936, and Bartolomé was caught up in the persecutions of Christians during the Spanish Civil War. He had been found guilty of treason, but everyone knew that his real crime was being a vocal Catholic trade unionist, and as he might have said of himself, a Catholic propagandist. Bartolomé was one of the young men carrying out the vision of the Catholic journalist Ángel Herrera Oria. Oria had long been critical of the Spanish Republic, but he thought that Catholicism had the answers to the problems in Spain. It felt a Catholic layman, Oria believed, to articulate a political position that applied Catholic teachings to Spanish politics. That was why Oria had become the editor of his newspaper, El Debate. It was also why he pushed for what he called Catholic propaganda, a kind of apologetics that responded to the political questions of the day. Since he had started the Association of Catholic Propagandists, Oria was always on the lookout for articulate young Catholics who could help. On a visit to Pozoblanco, Oria met young Bartolomé, who was already the secretary of his local youth group of Catholic Action. In conversation with the young man, Aria must have been impressed with Bartolomé's will and determination. Bartolomé had lost his mother to the Spanish flu when he was only a toddler. He and his brother had been raised by their father, and Bartolomé had started to show a lot of promise in school. He was at the top of his class, and when he was eight, he entered a catechism quiz contest, blowing away the competition to win the grand prize. It was a sheep. It seemed that this young man might have a future as a lawyer or a writer. But then, when Bartolomé was eleven, his father was killed in a workplace accident. An uncle, a chairmaker, took them in. Now, Bartolomé had to start earning an income. So, he left school. He was going to make chairs. But Bartolomé's sharp mind was still looking for an outlet. The Society of St. Francis de Sales, better known as the Salesians, had opened an oratory in Pozoblanco a few years earlier, and Bartolomé became active there, 
leading catechism training for younger boys. It turned out he was a good speaker and had a fast, flexible mind. The Salesians took note and invited Bartolome to take part in reading groups to supplement his education. Finally, they gave him a gift, an essential tool for an articulate young Catholic propagandist, a typewriter. Bartolome's skill at writing and speaking had allowed him to become the secretary for the youth wing of his local chapter of Catholic Action. Bartolome was exactly the sort of young man that Angel Herrera Oria was looking for. In a way, Oria and Catholic Action and even the Salesians were all addressing the same problem, which was that over the past hundred or so years, the world had changed in a way that everyone, including the Catholic Church, was still trying to grasp. I find it helpful to think of this change in numerical terms. Around 1800, the number of human beings reached one billion for the first time. These extra people crowded into cities and, in many countries, worked in the dark, dangerous conditions of the Industrial Revolution, in what the poet William Blake called dark, satanic mills. Workers had few rights, and employers had few obligations. By the early 20th century, global population had almost doubled to reach 2 billion, and the problem was even worse. There had always been conflicts between the rich and the poor, but this felt different. The poor weren't peasants anymore, they were workers. And the people oppressing them weren't land-owning aristocrats, but capital-owning industrialists. The old conflicts had been replaced by class conflict. By degrees it has come to pass, wrote Pope Leo XIII in 1891, that working men have been surrendered, isolated, and helpless to the hard-heartedness of employers and the greed of unchecked competition. The mischief has been increased by rapacious usury. All decent people could see that what was happening to workers was wrong. But what should be done about it? It is no easy matter, Pope Leo XIII acknowledged, to define the relative rights and mutual duties of the rich and the poor, of capital and of labor. The left and right redefined themselves in terms of this question. The left shifted away from their roots in classical liberalism to advocate for empowering workers at the expense of rapacious capital. The right shifted away from their monarchist roots to spell out a picture of a strong state that could bring workers and capital into a just accord. In Spain, institutions like Angel Herrera Oria's Association of Catholic Propagandists were trying to spell out a Catholic approach to the politics of class, one that allowed for private enterprise, but also required employers to care for those whom they employed. But as Spain shifted to the political left, the Spanish church found herself pushed further and further toward the political right. By 1933, Pope Pius IX wrote Delectissima Nobis, trying to explain that the church was politically neutral, while protesting the stripping of church property and rights in Republican Spain. Now, in the context of this class conflict, if you were looking for a spokesman for labor, you would be hard-pressed to find anyone better than Bartolomé Blanco Marquez. He was a carpenter. His father had been killed in a workplace accident. But he was also a devoted Catholic. He was thoughtful. 
and he happened to be blessed with the ability to express himself in what he said and wrote. After meeting with Bartolomé, Angel Herrera Oria was so impressed that he paid for Bartolomé to come to Madrid for further education. By the time he was in his twenties, Bartolomé was on his way to becoming what we might call an organizer. He was still based in Pozo Blanco, but he would leave his home and his girlfriend Maruja to travel around the province of Cordoba to help form chapters of the Catholic Trade Union. He would address the workers as someone who knew what it was like to get his hands dirty and spell out a Catholic understanding of labor rights. By the summer of 1936, Bartolomé had established eight different unions. In July 1936, elements of the Spanish army rose up against a government they now found intolerable. This unleashed a civil war that would last three years and end in victory for General Francisco Franco. And the army's rebellion also unleashed something unexpected and terrible. The Republicans didn't just make war on Franco and the other generals. They made war on the church. The scale of this persecution is difficult to grasp. The historian Julio de la Cueva reports that by the end of the war, the dead included 4,172 diocesan priests and priests in training, 2,364 monks and friars, 283 nuns, and 15 bishops. But even that doesn't explain how fast it all happened, because most of this killing occurred within the first year of the war. Why did the Republican Spanish start killing their priests? There were historic resentments, of course. Some people thought of the church as another powerful, oppressive organization. We can't discount the fact that the ideologies of communism and anarchism are both militantly atheist. And yet, to me, these explanations fall short of the facts. One historian was left scratching his head after this weird conversation with a Republican who had murdered a certain Father Domingo. Why did you kill him? That's quite simple. Because he was a priest. But then, did Father Domingo meddle in politics or have personal enemies? No, sir. Father Domingo was a very good man. But we had to kill all the priests. In some cases, it was as though the priest killers relished their roles as villains, as blasphemers. When one woman in a village begged some militiamen to spare the parish priest, for God's sake, they sneered at her. There is no other God than us. Indeed, the Republicans got an early taste of cancel culture, with their most fervent church haters trying to abolish the Spanish word for goodbye, adios, because it contains the word dios, God. When the revolution broke out, Pozoblanco briefly raised its own militia to defend the town, and Bartolomé went home to help. But the militia had no chance against the Republicans, who entered the town early and would hold it through most of the war. There, in the fall of 1936, Bartolomé must have waited nervously. He wasn't a priest, but he was heavily involved with the church. Would he be rounded up as well? Bartolomé didn't have long to wait. A former classmate had turned him in. Bartolomé was accused of helping the rebel nationalists and put on trial. Those who were there got the impression that the trial wasn't really about convicting him 
so much as scaring him into joining the Republican side. It was obvious that the Republicans also recognized that this young, articulate worker would be a powerful symbol for their cause. He was only 21, with extended family and a pretty girl waiting for him at home. They figured that if they scared him, he'd be happy to leave the Catholic stuff behind. And so, the prosecutor made a big deal about explaining that if Bartolome was found guilty, if he didn't want to maybe cooperate, he would be sent to die. And then Bartolome asked to speak, and told the court that they had better go ahead and execute him, because if they let him go, he would go straight back to his work as a Catholic. The court found Bartolome guilty. You thought you were hurting me, Bartolome told the crowd, but you've been making me a crown. And this was why Bartolome found himself in prison. He wrote a letter to his family, asking them to repay what had been done to him with forgiveness. And Bartolome worked out what to say to the woman he loved. My dearest Maruha, your memory will remain with me to the grave, and as long as the slightest throb stirs my heart, it will beat for love of you. God has deemed fit to sublimate these worldly affections, ennobling them when we love each other in him. Though in my final days, God is my light and what I long for, this does not mean that the recollection of the one dearest to me will not accompany me until the hour of my death. Bartolome was perfectly aware of what he was facing. He was not afraid. And in a few lines for his girlfriend, he sketched out the Christian concept of martyrdom. My sentence before the court of mankind will be my soundest defense before God's court. In their effort to revile me, they have ennobled me. In trying to sentence me, they have absolved me. And by attempting to lose me, they have saved me. In killing me, they grant me true life. And in condemning me for always upholding the highest ideals of religion, country, and family, they swing open before me the doors of heaven. But as for Maruha, all that he asked of her was that she would remember him, and through him, that she would remember to live a godly life, that there is a better life. Be strong, and make a new life. You are young and kind, and you will have God's help, which I will implore upon you from his kingdom. Goodbye, until eternity. Then, when we shall continue to love each other for life everlasting. Bartolome finished his letters. When the guards came to take him, he gave away the last things he had to give. He gave someone else his shoes. He didn't need them, and the other man did. Besides, he said, he wanted to walk barefoot to his death, a final act of imitation of Christ. In front of the firing squad, the Republicans wanted to blindfold Bartolome. He refused. Then they asked him to turn around. Bartolome faced the firing squad, folded his arms, and told them that a Christian man dies on his feet, looking forward, standing tall. As they raised their rifles, he shouted, Viva Christos Rey! Christ is King.